It's great to see God's family extending his welcome to one another. And uh, I certainly have felt that welcome this weekend. Um, name is Scotty Smith from North Carolina originally, but for the last 43 years I've lived with uh, my wife of 50 years, Darlene, uh, in the greater Nashville area, Franklin in particular. Our two adult kids and our four grandkids are there. So my chronology kind of dates me as an aging baby boomer. And, and I'm glad for that for a lot of reasons, uh, part of which really has been celebrated at this missions conference this week and this, this gathering when a wonderful church like yours remembers her story, uh, doesn't pretend to write a new story, but, but comes back to the narration of the gospel, the narration of Scripture. We, we live in a world right now where there's so many different stories and, and narratives that are trying to claim every aspect of who we are. And we, the people of God, are a remembering people, i.e. reconnecting, not just remembering as recall, but reconnecting with the wonders of God's love the nature of his commitment in this world. We are by nature allergic to grace. We all suffer from chronic gospel dementia. And it's why we need to be continually hearing the good news, which is the power of God into salvation. And that's what we've been doing this weekend. Maybe summarized best in that amazing gift the children gave us when we first started the service. The temptation when we see children singing, especially something that might connect us with our own childhood youth choir or something, is to think, how cute. But my thoughts were, how profound. I mean, that, that little chorus, he's got the whole world in his hands. Did you notice, as we sang it, it didn't talk just about people, but the created world as well. That's really rich theology, to have a view that really the... the Scriptures are telling a story that concerns God's commitment to celebrate and redeem people, places, and things. And that even right now in the world, there's no place where his beauty cannot be seen if we have eyes to see it. There's no place where we cannot hear God singing if we have a heart inclined to know the eternal joy, intimacy, and delight of God the Trinity. And the gospel, of course, calls us into that story, but retunes every aspect of our being. And that's what we want to talk about this morning in the final conversation, this sermon, about who we are and what we're called to be about. And to take us there this morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite texts from one of Paul's letters that he wrote while he was in a Roman imprisonment. And I think that's very important to remember an author situation. Paul is not uh, at Club Med uh, sipping pina coladas or sweet tea or something and just casually writing noble thoughts. Uh, he is in arrest, but he's truly Christ's prisoner. And so he writes several letters from that Roman imprisonment, and Philippians is one. In Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, we have kind of a microcosm of so much of the story that we're called into. Uh, we are given the mission that we are and are always on. And uh, the beauty of it, as you'll see as we go through this text, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is 
there's a, there's a background where Paul is pastorally helping a congregation realign itself relationally with, with their community. But then also he's going to go beyond the reach of our text today and say, and you know what? You are positioned as a church in a crooked and depraved generation. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed, he says. But be those who extend the word of life as shining stars in God's universe. So really this whole conference, the whole of the word of God, the whole of the sermon is about really coming to understand what is the hope we have. And so here are three words that I'll try to stay in my lanes of these three words as we walk through this text. I want you to think of a heartbeat, hands, and hope. Heartbeat, hands, and hope. What's the heartbeat of our story? What's the heartbeat of the gospel? What's the hands? Why are hands so important? Jesus has the world in his hands. He has us in his hands and says, no one can pluck us out. What about our hands? And then hope. What's the difference between wistfulness, crossing our fingers that the Yankees might win the World Series, if that's your team, Versus the certainty that the good work the Father began in us and in his cosmos, it will be completed. Listen to the word of God, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And we're going to walk through both of these realities. How how can a church be more alive to the culture the gospel creates? And how can she live far more outward facing with a genuine sense of hope, not fear? Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, Greek word there is one for really worldview, not just an attitude like am I irritated or am I kind. No, it's a a whole heart attitude. orientation. May this possess your heart. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for this church. Thank you for her history. 
Thank you, Lord, for her present. Thank you for her future that is secured by the finished work of Jesus. Lord, though our moments be brief, would you help us not just read this text, but be read by this text. And, and Lord, may your heart beat, beat in us. May your hands, Lord Jesus, servant hands, become ours. May the hope that we have, Christ in us, Christ among us, the hope of glory. This hope that's an anchor, not to pull us under, but to secure us in our culture, in our world, as those who live in love to the glory of God. Bring this hope to bear, Lord, this heartbeat, your hands, our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's walk from verse 1 through the text because there's a really unique story behind this section that if you don't read all the way through the letter, you miss. Now, arguably, I think we'd all say, verses 1 through 4, it's just some profound imagery about relationship, right? If you just read these verses not knowing the context, you might think that bar is set really high for what Paul is calling a local church to look like. And, and yet there's a story I want to remind those of you of that have worked through this letter. In chapter 4, Paul has to deal with some conflict in the church. Two very gifted sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, probably you did not name your granddaughters those names, but Euodia and Syntyche were two fabulously gifted women in the gospel. And, and Paul really commended them for their service, but they'd gotten turned sideways with each other. And we don't know what the conflict was. We don't have to know. But Paul in Philippians 4 is saying, really, you, the people of God, are called to conflict redemptively. You're called not to cancel each other and be at one another. You're not called to principally think about us versus them, even in the body of Christ. No, there's a, there's a different way we do life as the people of God that uniquely is connected to how Jesus relates to us. And so I, I, I don't know who in your church right now is hard for you to make eye contact with at your local Publix. I don't probably have Publix grocery stores here. Do you? What, what's the most obvious grocery store? Kroger's. All right, Kroger's is good. But, you know, we do life sometimes, and we just kind of get turned sideways, and we all know these last several years have been times of tension and, 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 and suspicion and all that. Well, Paul says to all of us, there is a way that if we live together, always being renewed by the gospel, it will be one of the most profound ways the gospel becomes believable and beautiful to the people in your cities that don't even know if there is a God. Or to those that are even so convinced Christians cannot be trusted. They're just a bunch of people wanting to fix the rest of us. And Paul says it's so different. What does it look like? So let's start in verse 1 and see how Paul wisely says, whatever relationships that are difficult right now in the body of Christ, here's the one we want to ponder, linger in, and join more fully. So he starts in verse 1. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, now let's stop right there. Uh, theologians who love to help us think in terms of categories 
referred to this really as a, as a, as a section of the indicatives of grace that will lead to the imperatives of love. In other words, uh, and I was not great in school whatsoever, never, never read a complete book until I got to college, just kind of missed out on the reading chip. And, um, and, and so when I hear this, when I, when I think about, you know, this whole section in terms of where Paul is going with regard to encouragement and comfort, I'm not sure where the reading chip came in. Let's don't worry about that. But I want to say this about this section. Do you see these two grand realities he highlights that assumes all humanity wants these two things? Encouragement and comfort. We're always going somewhere for encouragement. We're looking somewhere for comfort, whether it's with regard to our wounds, whether it's regard to simply our childhood story. We, 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 we're not strangers to encouragement and comfort, but what we are strangers to is how they are to be principally rooted in how we relate to Jesus. I mean, just, just consider what this phrase invites us into. Union with Christ. Now, what does that even mean? Well, it means this, that really to become a Christian doesn't mean you, you get sorry enough for yourself. You want to turn over a new leaf because really the Christian life is not turning over a new leaf. It's becoming a new tree. You know, we are, we're, we're not needing information. We're needing something that has to come to us from the outside, which is what exactly Jesus has done for us. And union with Christ is really what happens when, when God gives us faith to see our need and then to realize his provision for us in Jesus is exactly what we wanted and that really no human beings can fill us up, no political system, no change in the world, no different this, that, or the other can really meet the deepest longings or the cry of the soul. In union with Christ, literally we are raised to newness of life in Christ. God hides our life in Christ. But let me even unpack it further because we even said some of these words this morning. What encouragement is there for us in Christ? What, what is true about every Christian, a Christian that might be 17 nanoseconds into their Christian faith or the oldest believer in this room? What, what is true that needs to become real again? Encouragement and union with Christ. Let's start with this. If you're someone that has responded to the free gift of eternal life, all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. All sins of thought, word, and deed, not just the 4% of those you're aware of. Wouldn't it be a burden to think that the only sins God has forgiven me of is the ones I'm aware of and have confessed? See, this, this, the tragedy and the reality is most of us aren't aware of how broken we really are. God is saying through Jesus, we are in union with the one who has completely forgiven us, but also the one who actually lived in our place before he died in our place. I didn't understand this until later uh, as a believer that 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 the Christian life is not just forgiveness. It's also the gift of Jesus's righteousness legally considered to be mine. And I'm sure we've got some awesome lawyers in the room this morning, or those of us that have appreciated a legal system that says some things are legally true about you. You know, some people wake up to an inheritance that's legally theirs, even though they never knew it was there. What Paul is saying to us in terms of encouragement that we have in Christ, we are forgiven. We are fully known. We are fully loved. 
we are forgiven, we're also legally already have passed from judgment day. We're not afraid to die. Like the book of Hebrews says that Jesus came to set those three, who, set those free who all their lives were held in captivity to their fear of dying. We don't have to be afraid to die. Judgment has been rendered. God's judgment against our sin was taken by Jesus. See, don't let that just be the lyric of Christian theology. Let it be the music that you begin to say, Oh Lord, make that real again. That is good news. I am forgiven. God will never be astonished at shocked at anything you think, say, or do. He knows it's a lot worse than you do. And he's already declared you legally righteous in Christ. One day we will become as beautiful and loving as Jesus because God began a work he'll finish. We are already, according to Paul, as he states even in this letter, citizens of heaven. We have a, we have a kingdom engagement. We have a citizenship that transcends no matter what passport you have in your Little chest at home where you keep your special documents. We are citizens of heaven. We're not on probation. We're in Christ. Paul even ramps it up further and says that we are co-heirs with Christ of the entire new heaven and new earth. Now, how do you wrap your head around that? All you have is everything that Jesus won for you by his perfect life and obedience. It's legally ours, but existentially we need to connect with it. That's what gospel renewal is all about. And Paul's saying to a church in Philippi, you've got kind of turned sideways, you know. Yeah, none of us are glorified and therefore repentance and change and tenderness and kindness will be cultivated. They don't start with you doing more, trying harder. They, they, They happen again when we say, uh, listen, uh, I, I want us to process this thing that's really divided us. And as we learn to demonstrate reconciling love, I promise you, people outside this room smell something different. And, and it's the aroma of grace. Well, more about that. Well, so much more we could say. What, what else comes? Why should we be encouraged only because we're in union with Christ? Well, we've been adopted. God is our Father took me a long time to deal with that one as a positive category because when my mom was killed in a car wreck when I was 11 years old, she just turned 38, my dad was so depressed he never touched me physically in affection or discipline and did not even speak my mom's name for 40 years. I was an orphan in my own home. Father to me was absent, distant, and rigid, and I could never figure him out. That's not Abba Father. See, in the gospel, we get reparented. In the gospel, we come to understand that, that God is the father I always wanted. And thank God for good fathers. And I'm not defined by the worst father. I mean, there's so much more we could say, but we, we need to move on here. But you, you begin to realize what, what this heartbeat is. The, the heartbeat of mission is the gospel in our midst. We, we, are, we are coming back to gospel sanity every week. We feast upon the Lord. We, we come, we remember, and we experience comfort. Any comfort from his love, says Paul. Well, how, how does God comfort us? You know what? I've got certain stories of where this became profoundly real in my life. Um, my wife was married to Darlene. I mentioned Darlene and I had our 50th anniversary on May 5th this year. And, uh, but my wife was married to a man and pastor with a frozen heart for the first 25 years of our marriage. 
And it was only through a burnout in ministry when our church was doing awesomely that I began to be dealt with in areas of my heart of loss where God's comfort became palpable and began to change our marriage. We were, we were really uh, two orphans in a marriage. We both grew up in broken family systems and knew that Jesus was coming back. We got married in 72. We had kind of heard he might be back by 1975 or 78. So we thought we can do anything for three or five years is to serve Jesus. And uh, so there was no basis of friendship in our marriage. There was no sense of getting to know one another. And we woke up to the fact that Life in Jesus is different than that. And my wife began to live out a life of processing some of her heart wounds, including a chapter of childhood sexual abuse. And she did that several years into our marriage. And and you know what she began to say to me? Scotty, I don't think I really know you. Why? Because she's coming alive. And she knew we, as a couple, were just kind of coexisting. And, and, and really did love Jesus the best we knew. And then uh, years after, I don't think I know you, Scotty, and I didn't know what to do with that. She said to me when we planted the church and I was preaching four times every Sunday for eight years, I came home one day and she said, Honey, why do you you assume you're so much more alive in the pulpit than you are at home? Well, that's a nice Sunday afternoon conversation. (laughs) And you know what? She wouldn't say it. I'm so impressed with your preaching. You're like John Piper. (laughs) You're going to blow up one day in the pulpit. How, How does that happen? You're an introvert. No, she was saying, Really, why can't you pursue my heart and our kids' hearts? Last thing she said before my burnout that God really began to use to call me into comfort and healing and counseling. She said, Scotty, I want to get healthy with you, but I will keep getting healthy without you. Meaning, I'm going to stay in counseling. I want you to join me. But if you're more addicted to ministry, then you are really believing that God loves you. He doesn't need you to do anything. He loves you. You preach grace so well, why can't you believe it for yourself? And at age 50, and I'm pushing 73 now, last 20 years have been comforted by the love of God. And now I'm married to my friend. And we will weep more deeply when we bury one or the other than ever. I mean, there was times in our marriage when we probably both prayed, Lord, put two people out of our misery. Take one of us to heaven. It's just hard. And I'm a pastor and it's a fishbowl. And how do you pull that off? Well, enough about me, but hopefully that connects you to know. Encouragement in Christ is profound. Comfort from the love of God. Fellowship with the Spirit. Second part of the verse. Fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion. What does the Holy Spirit do in your life and my life? What is He committed to do? He cries out every day, Abba, Father. You see, the Spirit lives inside of us to bear witness with our spirits that we are beloved sons and daughters of the living God. It takes the third member of the Trinity to free us from our lies. He's there. He sealed us for eternity. He's making us like Jesus. Do you, you see how Paul's saying to a church, a good church, come back to the reality of What is yours? Live in your midst. So he writes these words, and then I'm going to hasten into the last part of the text that really is where we should always be our beginning, middle, and end with Jesus himself. But notice how Paul applies these words to this particular uh, congregation. Uh, uh, You know, if, if these things are happening for you theologically, experientially, then do this, he says, as a church. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. He's not saying 
agree about everything. See, there's um, the unity of the spirit is not the uniformity of our flesh. Sometimes we only have the capacity would be with people that see everything the way we do. If that's you, you're not going to have a lot of fun in the body of Christ. Because Jesus has a bride. He's growing a bride from every single people, group, tribe, language. And we will be one forever. We're to participate in that work. Now, Paul says, let this good news of Jesus collectively bring you to really honoring, to, 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 to pondering one-heartedness, being one in spirit and purpose, the ultimate purpose of living and loving to the glory of God, this, uh, this one spirit which is a spirit's work within us. Uh, deconstructing our selfishness and our control idolatries. Do, he writes in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You know what some people in the secular world would call that? Codependency. Thinking, oh, do you real, just realize how the Bible is calling you to completely lose your identity and just be so enmeshed in other people's lives? This is the opposite of that. This is be so alive to the love of God lavished on you in Jesus that you have more curiosity than criticism for the other. That your heart really is seeing that the heartbeat of Jesus and the hands of Jesus are servant hands. He who holds all things, he in whom all things are being summed up one day, he who has hands big enough to unite heaven and earth at his return. And finish making all things new. Those hands took up a towel to wash his unbelieving, divisive disciples on the night he would be handed over to be crucified. Jesus' hands are servant hands. And, and this is what Paul's saying. Um, live in love this way. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, and you see, here's where now Paul says this gospel culture, this unique gospel culture of grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and welcome. And I mean, what would it look like if in the next 10 years of Rivermont, God's welcome began to echo, the aroma of grace began to spread so that people who live within all kind of people from every kind of background, socioeconomic, etc., from 20 miles simply said, we are magnetically drawn to a people that are loving in ways that betray Southern culture. Would that be a good story? I mean, it's so much bigger than a great growing missions budget. Well, how is it possible? Here's where I will bring us to prayer and the rest of this service. Verse 5, Paul is so profound because he wants to end this text where every text really should take us. Your attitude, or basically this whole relational framework I'm talking about, how you think about what it means to be the church, how you process Euodia and Syntyche, the fact that you get turned sideways. I don't know if that was like Beth Moore and Kay Arthur fighting over who had the biggest attendance at their Bible study. I'm sure that wasn't in it. But, but you know where we go in our own brokenness, right? So here's, here's where it comes down. It is consider Jesus. Set your gaze on Jesus. See the much moreness of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, as Paul writes, being in very nature God, which is affirming the deity of Jesus. Jesus is not just a commendable person to be appreciated. He alone is worthy of our adoration. He is fully God who eternally being in very nature God. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. 
Again, he created the world, but what did he do? Who, being in a very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Greek word there is better the picture of, of, of grasping in terms of you're clutching something you don't want to lose. Any of you that know uh, Tolkien, you know, I, I say Gollum, you say hold tightly what? The ring. You see, grasping selfishly is Gollum wanting the ring for himself. Jesus is relinquishing, never ceasing to be God, not for one nanosecond, never ceasing to be God. Jesus doesn't grasp who he is for himself, rather made himself nothing. And that means he took the very nature of a servant. But, but not just the servant of God as servant, fully man, he, because he did come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's the second Adam. The first Adam failed us miserably. This one lived and died for us, who being in very nature, God became a, took the nature of a servant, made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. That doesn't mean he kind of looked like a man, but he did not have a physical body. He was actually God incarnate. And you know what? We will know him in eternity by the scars and the very body he took to himself for 33 years of incarnate life. We will see Lord Jesus the glorious king of the cosmos, wearing the marks of his sacrifice for us. Paul says, this is the one you are in union with. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death on the cross. Obedient to death on the cross means it was an appointment, and it did not surprise him. He knew to his own disciples' dismay, he came to go to Jerusalem to give himself and to be raised three days later. They didn't get it until after the resurrection. And we still don't get it as we sit here so much of the time. It either seems too good to be true, or it's been so hijacked by Christian subculture, we miss the wonder, love, and praise of God incarnate for us. And now God living in our midst with this profound hope. He became obedient to death, death on the cross. He exhausted our judgment, having lived in our place. And at his resurrection and ascension, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave to Jesus the name that's above every name. Jesus did not earn exaltation by his crucifixion and resurrection. He returned to it. Do you remember in John 17, his praying on the night of his betrayal? Father, I'm so looking forward to returning to enjoy the glory I knew with you before the world began. Can you imagine being a disciple and hearing Jesus pray like that? But then also hearing him say, And Father, I want my joy to be in them, the fullness of my joy. Protect them, Lord. Keep them. All the love of God for the world. All the love of God for you right now as you struggle just to listen to my final words because pain, anger, disconnect, sadness are louder than the love of God. Paul continues, God exalted him, gave him the name above every name. And here's, here's where hope comes in. And we've already said, please understand that biblical hope is radically off opposite of what we call wistfulness or cross-fingeredness. It's confident assurance that the future is secured so I can live differently in this moment because it's my reality now. What is 
Paul picking up here and here when he uses these words, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is not, see the sermon is winding down, is not saying everybody will eventually be reconciled to God through Jesus. What he is saying is that God has appointed a day when the entire, every generation family of God will be gathered. And we will bow to our coronation. And others that have simply wanted to be their own Savior, repudiated free grace, will know those consequences. But for us, let's think about this in terms of finally in the context of remission. Above earth, on earth, under the earth is picked up in Isaiah's prophecy of what will the messianic kingdom be like? What will the bowing of the knee, not to pagan kings or even human kings or even Israel's kings, really look like? It will look like the writing of all things. It will be in Tolkien's words, the day when everything sad becomes untrue. Or in Jesus' own words in the final vision of the Bible, when he finishes making all things new. And therefore, every single address in Lynchburg has the destination of the glory of God marked on it. There is not a single one of your vocations that does not matter in this story. You're not paying for life whatever the Lord's called you to do. You're saying, Lord, how, how, first of all, thank you for my vocation. Thank you for, for my community. How do we live in light of the day of ultimate writing of all things? And not beat our breast and triumph because we win, but because you, O oh Lord Jesus, have triumphed over evil. You have triumphed over racism. You've triumphed over inequity. You've triumphed over war. You've triumphed over my own foolish self-pity party throwing heart. Hallelujah, what a Savior you are. I would just love to pray for us in conclusion, just the gospel beauty of what we've just sat in. That through Jesus we are fully known, fully loved. And as a church, the greatest gift we will give this city is humility, kindness, gospel astonishment, and a generosity that can only be explained in terms of the love of God. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the heartbeat, the hands, and the hope that come to us in Jesus the heartbeat, the hands, and the hope that the gospel creates inside of us. Thank you, Father, for your lavish love set on us, your favor that's unwavering, that right now is at work making us like Jesus even when we sleep because the Spirit's at work. Oh, Lord, free us from lesser dreams. Free us from plans that don't require Jesus. Free us from planning for retirement when you call us to reframing, refueling, refocusing, living and loving to your glory, becoming more childlike and less childish. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for the missionaries this church supports. Thank you for a lunch of grace and bread that we will enjoy very soon. Thank you for the rest of this service calculated just to seal these things further in our heart. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah to salvation, we declare in Jesus' name. Amen.